You're listening to the Business as Usual podcast, your weekly discussion of all things business, finance, and personal finance. And now, here's your host, Jason Hughes. Hey guys, and welcome to the Business as Usual podcast. This is uh, episode four, and we've got Matt and Nick on the show this week. Uh, how are you going, Matt? Yeah, pretty good. Um, unfortunately, wasn't able to get a, a YouTube video out this week. I was pretty busy with just just my work. Um, generally, I'm able to do some research, but this time I wasn't wasn't able to. Um, and what about you, Nick? Yeah, I've been good. I've just been uh, pumping away at the podcast um, and back at uni now, so um, getting into that. And yeah, the podcast's been doing doing all right but i saw your live stream yesterday got some good attention yeah i yeah, always wondered like how they would go like a live stream with like a smaller subscriber base but it, yeah no it seemed to work yeah it was we should try to do this podcast live at some point that'd be cool that would be interesting wonder how we would do that i don't, I don't know how you'd do that yeah. but yeah I'm, I'm sure joe rogan can do it so we can do it yeah that's true <laughs> All right, so yeah, just before we go live, or until we figure that out, um, we are going to be premiering these episodes on YouTube at midday on Saturdays, that's uh, Sydney time. Um, So it's going to switch between uh, the Millennial Investor channel and uh, Nick's channel, Aussie Money Man. So um, just you'll see the notification come up um, at midday, and then it's also on the audio feed on everywhere you get podcasts, so Spotify, Apple podcasts uh, pocket casts everywhere i think we're now on so that's good um and we also just wanted to say that if you guys have any questions we do want to start adding some of your questions in at the end of the episodes um so you can just contact us anywhere on our socials or um in the youtube comments is probably a good place because we'll definitely check those um and i also just set up an an email address if you prefer to email um, that'll be in the show notes, but it's uh, businessaupodcast at gmail.com. So if you want to send in uh, email questions, we can do that as well. Uh, Matt, do you want to just explain what we're going to be doing in this episode? Yeah, no worries. So pretty much we're, we're trying to look at how we're going to be picking a stock. And there's multiple different ways that obviously you can pick a stock. And we're going to cover four main types of stock investing. So first up, we're going to go through uh, growth investing just go through a bit of a run through of, you know, what it is, how it's done. And then at the very end of each one, we we're going to throw some, basically some pros and cons to that investing style. Uh, the second one, we've got to have value investing. Third, dividend investing. And finally, we're going to have catalyst investing. Yeah, so I think we'll just jump straight in with uh, growth investing. So you're going to take us away on that one. Yeah, no worries at all. So yeah, growth investing, I think I'm most comfortable with. Um, generally because it's a looking through the financials, I find it a lot easier. So generally growth investors, they look at earnings and generally you want some momentum in those earnings. So earnings for these growth companies are generally expected to, you know, grow at a, an above average rate. And that's in comparison to, you know, the, the industry that it's in. So Generally, in an industry, you've got a whole bunch of competitors and stuff like that. And you're looking at the best performer or the best up-and-coming performer in that industry and trying to invest in that stock. 
Um, growth investing, it's a little bit different to the other styles, but we'll get into that later. But growth investing, basically, you're looking to maximize your capital gains in that stock rather yep. than, you know, you're not really going for dividends because, you know, at growth, growth companies don't have the capital to actually give out and pay out dividends. And pretty much you're better off investing your money in the company or reinvesting the money in the company than actually paying those dividends out because by their nature, they are high growth. Yeah. So they're, they're generally going to be sort of, I'm guessing, uh, early stage companies or earlier stage companies. Um, obviously, they'll have IPO'd because you can buy their stock, um, but it's going to be something that's in either a new sector or... Yeah, for um, sure. and, and like not a like a, a hundred year old bank or a a telco or something like that. It's going to be something that's like you said up and coming, um, and that's sort of growing at huge rates every yeah. year. So yeah, so generally you're going to see companies like tech companies. They're pretty much just considered growth companies. Yeah. Um, and the other thing with growth growth companies is that they don't typically they're not. Uh, going to be valued below their intrinsic value ever. That's that's all more of more of uh, value investing. So yeah. when you look at a growth company, it's going to be extremely expensive in the eyes of a value investor. So yeah. for example, you could look at like Netflix or Afterpay here, and their price to earnings ratios are through the roof, and that's yeah. that's just to account for the growth that people are going to expect in the coming years. And that's sort of how people value the company. They look at the expectations of earnings growth for that company in that industry and then sort yeah. of project that out in order to value the company at that present time. Yeah. So in terms of if you're researching one of these uh, growth companies, I'd, I'd expect you're, you're looking a lot more at maybe industry factors if it's like you mentioned Afterpay, that's like a brand new sector. Yeah. So you're looking at more of those factors and what possibly the that sector could provide and how yeah. well that sector is going to do yeah, in so the economy versus how well that company is yeah. going to do in its sector. Yeah. So pretty much when I look for high growth companies, at, like I've done in the past, I will look first to the industry that's you know, going to be expecting high growth. So in the past, a couple of the things that I've traded might have been uh, the lithium stocks in the early days, uh, some of the marijuana stocks, companies that, you know, were expecting high growth uh, over the coming years. And, yeah, you know, this is in comparison to say, I don't know, the banks or the retail industry. Those things yeah. you wouldn't expect... Uh, a growth company to be in. I mean, um, there de there definitely is growth companies in those industries, um, but you're less likely to find one in there. So if you go first to the industry and look for high growth industries, and then you know pick out some of the best companies in those industries, you're much yep. more likely to find a successful investment. Yeah. And what are some, I guess, key like key metrics that you would look like look at to quickly identify uh, companies you might want to research a bit more if you're looking for growth stocks. Yeah, no worries. So personally for me, I look for 
strong earnings growth and it has to be strong, consistent earnings growth. So yep. generally, of course, this is going to depend on the size of the company, but generally anything over, say, 10% earnings growth is what I would consider, yep. you know, you're starting to get up into growth stocks. But yep. if you can get above 15%, that's even better. And that's pretty much the main point that I look at. Obviously, you've got other factors like strong forward earnings growth and you want to see improving profit margins on top of that so yep. that it's basically indicative of management, you know, running the company well. If they can... Yeah. Because they are these early stage companies, they are at risk of blowing out some of their costs as they're ramping up their businesses. So... Yep. If you find that management is controlling their costs and their profit margins are still strong, it shows you that, you know, they're expanding at a quite a good rate and controlling the expenditure of the business, business as well. Yeah. And I guess in that case, you might want to look at something like EBITDA um, for instead of earnings, maybe, like yeah. I would say, because yeah, yeah. like a, a new company is going to be especially in the US, I think more so than in Australia, a new company is going to be depreciating its assets very, very quickly for sure, yep. at, like, at the front end of its life than right at the end, just yep. for those tax breaks and stuff. So, um, if you ta- so you've got to take out that, those taxes and depreciation amortization out of the earnings. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, EBITDA is earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. Um, so, for those companies that are going to be investing in a lot of assets and then depreciating them quickly, you're going to see much lower earnings um, than what they're actually making because of that sort of paper um, expense of a depreciation. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I mean, the, the one of the easiest ways to look at if a stock is potentially a growth uh, company is it's, it's, a, it's pretty much already going to have a strong stock performance. So, yeah. if you look at the chart, it's basically you can look at it in 10 seconds and decide whether or not it's potentially a growth company. If the chart yeah. is blowing up, you know, it's doubled in the past year or so, there's a chance that that company might be a growth company and you could look into it further. Obviously, it's not it's a not an indicator of how good the company is or, you know, if it's actually a growth company at all, but it's, a, it's certainly an indicator if if institutions are buying the stock up like that. Yeah, there's something going on there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's I don't know. There's definitely there's definitely like pros and cons to each of these. So yeah, I so what would you say are some of the cons? The cons, well, <clears throat> I guess some of the cons would be you've got these growth companies and they're priced to absolute perfection. So if there's any slip up in earnings you get a massive cutback in the share price because yep. if the company is, say, expected to grow at, I don't know, 20% and then one quarter they come in and say that they're growing at 10% and expect this to continue into the future, they're going to be priced accordingly to that. And I think, yeah. I guess the most, uh, the, the best example of this would have been possibly, I would say, Bell, Bellamy's here in Australia. So, yep. at their peak, they were considered a growth company and they were, I think they had a P of roughly like 50 or so. And then 
they they basically put out or A2M put out that they were going to be struggling with growth and this sort of flowed down through the other milk industries, the companies in that. And it cut yep. Bow down from a P of 50 down to 18. And you've seen the share price go from 22 down to like $7. And that's the yeah. risk that you take with these growth investing strategies is that all the companies are generally priced to perfection. And as soon as they slip up on uh, earnings, you have to be ready to get out of that stock. Yeah, um, so I guess it's a much um, more involved uh, strategy than uh, something like value investing. Definitely. Like you, you have to be watching the stock and watching the earnings releases. And if yeah. there's any indication that that company's slowing down, then you have to get out of that stock. Yeah, because I guess it, it's all about the... It's about the earnings. It's not about any of the other metrics that we're really looking at in a company. It's just the earnings. And if that earnings slows down, that's really like a, it's the end of the growth for that company. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I mean, the other one, of course, is because they are a growth company, don't expect to get any dividends. Like they're going to be yeah. reinvesting those dividends into the back into the company in order to grow it more. So if you do want that, uh, consistent revenue stream, you're not going to get it through growth investing. Yeah, and I guess if you see a dividend, then that's definitely not a growth stock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so, if, if I did see a dividend in a growth stock, I'd be questioning why is that company giving out a dividend when they, you know, they should be reinvesting that company? Are they, yeah, I, it would just like, be very confusing to me to see that. Yeah, like a, a dividend is. And a growth stock just don't go together. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I guess we'll move on then to value investing. So For sure. Value investing is um, it's a very popular investing style, um, and it's the if you ever read books like um, Rule Number One Investing or uh, The Intelligent Investor, this is what the the style that those books are sort of teaching. Um, and the idea of the value investing style is to find a company that is trading below what it should be worth um, or what we call intrinsic value um, and to buy that company. And the idea is that over time, that company will come back up to the um, come back up to its actual intrinsic value. And so you make money on that differential. What? What causes though that differential? Like, why would it fluctuate? Well, in- so see, this is this is um, part of the reason why I don't um, fully commit into value investing. Um, is that I, I think that the market these days is quite quite efficient. Um, it's obviously not perfectly efficient; otherwise, you would never make any money in the market. But it's kind of it. Value investing comes out of a time sort of around the 1940s, 1950s, maybe like even into the 80s when the market was a lot less efficient. And so companies might fly under the radar or they might um, like investors might just be pessimistic about one aspect of the company and sort of discount the other aspects of a company and trade them at a discount. Yeah. Um, and then when the market wakes up to the realities of what the company is doing, then it's going to suddenly trade up. 
Now, okay. I will say that um, Warren Buffett, who is kind of the, the modern value investor after, say, Benjamin Graham, has adapted the, um, the style a little bit. So he's no longer looking for companies that are just trading at a discount. What, they, what he's um, also looking for is a very strong company that maybe exhibits some not necessarily growth style characteristics, but exhibits um, characteristics that show that it's going to grow into the future and has a good future. And then wants that company to be trading at a discount. Okay, um, so there, th- there'd be much fewer opportunities if you were looking at good companies that are trading below the value that they should be trading at. Yeah, and I guess the reason for that is if there's a really good company out there, the chances of other people knowing about that is very, very high. Yep. So I guess you're, whenever you're investing in stocks, you have to be understanding that it's really a competition and that you're not just doing it in your own little bubble and buying and selling stocks. It, you are competing against other people to find the opportunities and then act on those opportunities. So, And, and I mean, I guess for Warren Buffett, like the amount of capital that he has, he can't really go ahead and buy into those smaller unknown companies. I mean, he can, but he's not going to be able to generate a large enough return from those smaller companies because he won't be able to deploy all his capital. So, yeah. unfortunately for him, as you get more money, like you can only really invest into those larger companies that actually have the liquidity and the number of shares to actually buy into that company. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the, other, the other thing that goes along with Warren Buffett is that whenever he invests in something, the stock goes up <coughs> because... There's a bunch of people out there who r- really uh, look up to Warren Buffett and just kind of go and buy the stock that he's buying. Yeah. So, like, it, it's it's pretty funny if you watch um, anytime uh, an article comes out about um, Buffett buying or selling a stock, everybody else does it and it moves in his favor. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this is already after Buffett has gotten set in the stock. So he'd be laughing. So. First of all, they push up the stock um, after he's already bought into it and they sell down the stock after he's already sold out of the position. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say that he's going and buying stocks just for the um, purpose of doing this. Um, I think people would catch on to that pretty quickly and I think he yeah. would end up in handcuffs pretty quickly if he yeah. was doing that. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's what he does. Um, and I was, I was, when I was researching this this week, I came across quite a few articles, which are just sort of saying that maybe he's losing his edge or maybe, and I don't know if it's him losing his edge or if it's a strategy losing its, uh, validity in the modern world, but Berkshire Hathaway hasn't been, um, making the same returns that it did back in the 70s and 80s yeah. uh, than that it has like sort of in the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, it's even like, it's questionable whether he's really even beaten the S&P 500. Um, I, 
I think out. I've seen that same chart that you've seen, and it, it, it really did fluctuate above and below the market average. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think there's there are a few explanations for it. One, I definitely think that value investing is becoming less applicable to the market, and we'll talk about some reasons why. Um, but I also think, like, Berkshire Hathaway is, I think, the fourth or fifth biggest company in America. Yeah. Um, and so when you've got these companies, like... Um, like Berkshire Hathaway, which is just ginormous, you can't expect it to grow at 20% or 30% like it was in the 80s. Exactly. Like, I, I saw in one of the articles, it was saying that if uh, Berkshire Hathaway was going to continue growing at the same rate that it has been, that it, or that it was in the 70s and 80s, it would, by 2030, it would be worth like, a hundred quadrillion dollars or something, <laughs> um, which is just ridiculous. So you can't expect it to grow that fast. Um, but also I do think it's becoming less applicable. Um, yeah. But we'll just get into sort of what you would look for in a value investment. Um, and I guess the modern way people are looking at this is the way that I think Phil Town teaches. Um, he's a hedge fund manager. Okay. And he's, ri he's written some books on value investing. Um, and it kind of gets summed up in what I've heard called the four M's method. Um, and those four M's relate to or uh, meaning, moat, management, and margin of safety. And essentially what the idea is, is you find a business that has meaning to you. And so you can understand it. Um, and then the moat section of that is looking for a business that has uh, an economic moat or essentially something that it's a essentially a barrier to entry for other businesses to come and take over that business's spot. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if you're looking at a wide economic moat, it pretty much means like a strong company because most strong companies have, you know, an economic moat of some sort. Yeah, um, and those, yeah, those, I guess it, it it's specifically looking at, um, uh, looking at a competitive advantage. So yeah. I think some of the, like, there's sort of qualitative modes that Phil Town talks about. And so there's different types. So there's ones like a switching mode is one where um, once, uh, a customer or group of customers is using that company's product, it's difficult for them to switch away to another product. So a good example maybe is like uh, Microsoft Windows or Microsoft Office. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of businesses out there use those uh, products. And so it's difficult for them to switch away um, or a more sort of, retail example i guess is apple's uh ecosystem where in like iMessage and all of this stuff if you if you have an iphone and you have a macbook and everything it's very difficult to switch away to other um other products even if those products might be better products just the um how ingrained your life gets into apple's products makes it difficult to switch away yeah I mean, I guess you probably have to replace like a lot of your devices, like all of your devices, if you're going to do that. Yeah. 
So Apple would be a company that you'd say has a strong economic moat. Now, um, this is quite like a sort of modern idea, but um, there is, um, just from looking at competitive uh, companies and sort of their competition within industries, um, there is an, a bit of an older framework that you can look at called Porter's Five Forces. Okay. And it's something that um, you sort of look at. Um, there's the five forces, which is threats of new entrants, threats of substitutes, bargaining power of customers, bargaining power of suppliers, and competitive rivalry. So okay. I guess this is just a bit of a a deeper analysis of the comp competitive landscape. And if you're finding something that's really strong on Porter's Five Forces, then um, you, you've probably found a, a very strong company. Um, so it, I'll leave some links to Porter's Five Forces. It's quite a, a long topic, so we won't talk about it now. Um, but I'll leave some links to learning about that. That's a very good way of looking at um, competition in industry. Um, anyway, we'll move on. So management is looking at um, what the the managers are doing and how they're investing in the business. So this goes back to, I guess, growth investing. Um, but it's so looking it. more at if someone, if the business isn't growing, you want to see the management paying out those that as dividends. Yep. Um, and if the business is growing, you want to see them investing and growing the business at a good rate. Um, is that pretty much the only sort of indicator that you can look at to actually gauge whether you have strong management or not? I think that's that's the management in terms of your returns. If you're just looking at stock returns, I think there are some other things you can look at as um, sort of how the managers um, act at the AGMs and on conference calls. Um, yeah. Are they answering questions? What are their expertise? Um you don't want managers like who have no idea of what the industry is or any yeah, of this stuff. Of so there's a qualitative analysis that you need to look at the management. <clears throat> um, I will I will caution um, for big businesses. I don't know, like the CEO, like if he's um, not a very nice guy or he's um, like whatever. If you've got a business like Apple or like these multinational businesses, I don't know if the CEO is going to have that much effect on the business. Okay. Um, I think there's, there's enough layers of management yeah. that like just looking at the CEO isn't, isn't enough. So I would caution things on that point. And then just the last point on the 4Ms method is the margin of safety. So this is where we're talking about buying the stock at a lower price than what it's worth. Yep. How would, yes. So how would that even be possible? Because we're looking at extremely strong businesses, right? We have an economic moat, uh, strong management, and also you have a understanding of the company, which generally it's a lot of people then would then have an understanding of the company if you're just a retail investor. And yeah. it'd be, you know, widely known. How then would you be able to buy a widely known company that has strong management and a strong moat? 
for a discount? Look, this is this is the reason why I'm not a value investor. Um, and I think it's the yeah. reason back in, say, 1950, information's a lot harder to come by. Um, you can't just get financial statements in two seconds by going online. And yeah. you can't, um, the news isn't as fast. So information is really the thing here that sets, um, allows you to make returns in value investing. If you have more information than everyone else through your significant research into the company, then you're going to make returns. Um, but in the modern world where you can go on to uh, the company's website and get financial reports dating back like 40 years in some cases, and you get it instantly and you can, there's all these information sources out there. Like I, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to find something that truly is a good value play. Yeah. And, and I guess yeah. you go on. Well, I just wanted to say that um, there are, as a value investor, I mean, sorry, as a, as a small retail investor, the information you can find online is very limited. Um, like you can find like news articles maybe, and you can go and read the financial statements and all this stuff. But you've got to remember that institutional investors, uh, they have access to things like FactSet and uh, Bloomberg terminals, which are very, very useful and aggregate information. And it's, um, you know what a Bloomberg terminal is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a few other traders in the in the group that I'm in that have a Bloomberg terminal, which is pretty handy. Oh, really? So yeah. they're able to call out stuff as soon as it hits the terminal. Um, yeah. And you're pretty much, you, you're not at a disadvantage then. Yeah, because Bloom, the Bloomberg terminals are extremely expensive to get. I think they cost like $15,000 a year for a license or something ridiculous. I think it's a little but, bit more than that, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. close to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy money to get your hands on one of those. Um, and yeah, they are always up to date. Um, even like news that gets posted on Bloomberg.com. And um, we've got to remember that Bloomberg that is a news is a news company. So they make their money by posting things first, but the news hits the Bloomberg terminal before it hits Bloomberg.com. Yeah. So that's just something to, to think about. Like these people have news long before you, they have much more information than you. So value investing, like you, you're taking a risk, I think going purely value investing because it's going to be very difficult for you to find proper value plays. See, that's, that's, I guess the main problem I have with value investing is the market, it prices in all, all knowledge of that company, even if you don't know it. Yeah. So like, for example, if, if you have a stock that's uh, dropping quite rapidly or even just trending down and you feel as though, you know, everything about that company possible, you know, there might be knowledge out there that you don't know that's causing that stock decline. And yeah. generally, when that knowledge becomes available to you, that's caused that stock decline, it's already too late and you've already lost a quite, quite a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Waiting, well, I, I will say that 
there, there certainly is times when stocks overreact to news stories. Oh, um, yeah, for so sure. You may have the same information everyone's <laughs> acting on, but yeah, you're definitely right. Um, there's people out there who have more information than you and they're acting on it already. Um, so I think the market is a much more efficient market these days, especially yeah. with like high frequency traders and all this stuff. It's a much, much more efficient market than it was when Benjamin Graham and um, like even when Warren Buffett was starting. It's a much more efficient market now. Yeah, I think I think pretty much the only edge you have now in this market is probably your size as a retail investor. Yeah, you're you're able to move in and out of positions uh, pretty much instantaneously, depending on your position size. So when a stock does start to swing either up or down, like you do have the power to get out of that stock straight away. Whereas you know these larger larger firms have to do it over the course yeah. of months. Yeah, and that's why value investing is. You're, if you're value investing, you're not taking uh, advantage of that edge that you've got because the idea is you you should only buy companies that you're comfortable holding if the stock market were to shut down for 10 years is the idea. Yep. Um, so you're giving up that edge that you've got there. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, I think we'll move on to dividend investing. Sure. See, so, yeah, I did a bit of research on this. And I think, Nick, you'll be able to add some stuff with this because your knowledge of tax. Yeah, so we'll, we'll jump into this. I'll leave the uh, taxing around like franking credits and stuff up to Nick then and he'll be able cool. to better explain how the awesome. franking credits actually affect your tax bill. Okay, All right. no worries. We'll jump into dividend investing. We'll see, see what happens. Yeah. No worries. So dividend investing, it's pretty much a, a more narrowed approach than income investing. So I guess... Above dividend, you have income, which is you're trying to generate a reliable source of income through your investing. And that includes uh, bonds and like term deposits as well. But with yep. dividend investing, it also it goes to step down. You actually eliminate bonds and term deposits. So you're primarily looking at generating that uh, source of income from only dividends. And yep. yeah, so you pretty much you have to look at whether a company actually pays a dividend, which is easy to scan for. And then you want to see if that company actually has a steady dividend over that period of time. Okay. Are you, are you looking for the size of a, di- of a dividend? So yeah, it's when you're looking at the dividend actual uh, yield, which is basically you work out you know, the dividends per share and divided by the price per share. There's, there's two different ways you can look at this because some people like to invest in very high dividend yielding stocks, meaning they're paying out a lot of money to their investors. Yeah. But sometimes there's reasons for why that company has a high dividend yield. And if you simply okay. just look, if you simply just look at the, the equation, which you got dividend yield equals the dividends over the actual share price. If you narrow the denominator, which is the actual share price or decrease it, sorry, your dividend yield is going to go up. So if you yeah. looked at, say, the banks, for example, who are yielding quite a quite a good dividend, it's because the the share price has actually gone down in value, not that the dividends have increased in value. Yeah, and that's the important. Is that such a bad thing? Well, it it depends. Like, if you have a high dividend yielding stock, 
you don't know if that company is actually secure in its dividend yield. Okay. Like generally, so if the high- my cut is dividend. Exactly. So generally, if you see high dividend yielding stocks, there's a very good chance that that company is going to cut its dividend in the future, and its yeah. share price is leading the dividend itself. So you'll see a higher dividend yield on basically poorer companies. This isn't always the yeah. case, of course, but it does happen. And you see this with, say, for example, the banks recently. Yeah. Um, and I'm so guessing guess, if you have some good charting software, you could chart the dividend yield against the stock price over time sure. and see what's moved that dividend yield. Yeah. But I mean, I guess you really just have to know the company then in that case, because if you know the reason why the share price is going down and it's not going to affect the dividend uh, for whatever reason that is, then you're probably right to invest in that company. But if you're unaware of why the share price is plummeting and the dividends remaining the same, then it's a bit of a red flag when actually investing in those dividends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's multiple different ways actually that the company can do this. I didn't actually explain this, but there's two ways like growth and dividend. They're kind of pole opposites. Uh, so dividend investing, you basically have a company that's, I would say it's reached the end of its life cycle in that, yeah. well, it's growth life cycle. So it's pretty much, it can't grow anymore. And management believe that those dividends aren't better reinvested in the company. Like they can't generate a return greater than what they can pay out. And you would be able to generate yourself. So that's why they pay out those dividends. Yeah. So generally by the nature of these companies, they're very large, mature companies. Um, not always are they actually good companies. They're just paying out a dividend. So yeah. for example, you know, you might've looked at Telstra, for example, um, you could have been buying Telstra up at like $5 a share or something like that. And you're buying it for its dividend like most people were, but it kept plummeting in price. And you're actually offsetting your dividend by the capital loss that you're actually receiving on that company. So that's it's really important that you, you want a strong company that's paying a dividend because you don't want your dividend to be offset by the capital loss that you're going to get on that that investment yeah. yeah that's true yeah. yeah so that's that's like the opposite of what i said so like you had a high dividend yielding company um in my case that had that was of poor value basically and it was high dividend yielding because uh it was a poor company and you had that share price decreasing in that case your case there you had a really good company and they just so happened to be i guess undervalued and paying it a massive dividend and then the market seen that reacted and then priced it accordingly so you got that capital growth with that dividend, which is awesome, awesome investment. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the other thing to note here is that when a company uh, announces that it's going to pay a dividend, there, there, there is a, a time difference between when they announce the dividend and when they actually pay the dividend. Yeah. Um, and then there's a cutoff at some point in there um, for when you can actually get the dividend. Um, like you've got to own the stock before that cutoff. Um, and then it, after the dividend is paid, the stock price is going to drop. Well, um, it drops accordingly. It drops pretty much the exact same amount. As the dividend, yeah. Yeah. Because, and that's, um, if you've ever studied the time value of money, you'd know exactly why. It's because 
the expectations of investors uh, that they're, they're pricing the stock based on the returns they think they're going to get. Um, and so a dividend is an exact dollar amount that they're going to get. And so when the, um, when you on say the exact second, the dividend is going to be paid, there's no time value of money calculation in there. And then the exact second after the dividend's paid, now that um, return is gone from the stock. Um, yeah. But I guess if you've got a stock that pays a very regular dividend, the best time to buy into that stock if you wanted to access that dividend would be like the day it goes ex-dividend. Yeah. Because then you're sort of getting that capital gain up to the next dividend and then... Um, also getting that dividend yeah for sure and i guess i guess if i was to get into dividend investing i don't know how common this is but i would i would look at doing a strategy like that where i'm like like dividends are generally paid uh half yearly or yearly for companies so i would look at that sort of time horizon and because dividends are paid generally with the earnings i would reevaluate my view on the company every time an earnings release comes out and then take that dividend and make a decision am i staying with this company till the next dividend or am i getting out now because i think maybe next next time they're not going to give me the same dividend yield or not give a dividend at all yeah and i mean i just a quick plug here it's of a different youtube channel but uh his name is, uh, I think it's called Invest for the Future or something like that. Yeah. 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 So, he, he had a really interesting one or an interesting couple of ones. It was kind of like a series where he looked at the returns that you gained from investing in dividend-related dividend stocks on the ASX and then compared that to investing in growth stocks in the ASX. Yeah. And it showed that basically if you were doing this dividend investing um it was it was underperforming the market and I, I found that really interesting to see that i think it was like a negative one or two percent whereas the market returned i don't know two percent or so so it underperformed by quite a bit yeah and i guess that's yeah one of the cons of dividend investing is that even though you know you're, you're getting the the dividend from the stock you're looking at the offset from the capital loss that you're also getting. Yeah, and I guess you're looking at a different stage in an investor's life maybe because if you're investing in a company that pays a solid dividend all the time, you could, I guess, in effect, just put your money in that company. Let's say yeah. put hundreds of thousands of dollars into the company. If you're getting paid a 7% dividend every single year, well, maybe that's enough for you to actually just live on. Like yeah. you're not necessarily looking for um, beating the market or whatever. You're literally just looking for money to Reliable. live on. Yeah. And so. that's that's pretty much, we, we've talked about it multiple times in here before, but it's everything's associated with risk. The lower the risk you have, the lower the return you're going to get. So yeah. It's like investing in a term deposit account. Like it's a very low risk uh, strategy, obviously, because the only thing that can... Uh, disrupt that is if the bank goes bankrupt yeah um so obviously if you're doing this dividend investing in these mature companies that have a very stable dividend you're not going to generate the same return which is a con but at the same time you've got the pro of 
it's the peace of mind of safe. you don't have the variability in the in the dividend that you would have with say like a growth stock and its capital gain yeah so i guess and yeah i guess you've got a way up like for someone maybe later in life who's literally just looking for that uh, steady income and who has a lot of capital to put into a stock you may not yeah. care too much because maybe you're like 80 years old and you don't know if you're going to live for the next <laughs> 20 years like yeah. it doesn't matter if that money is whistled away by like capital losses as long as you're getting your dividend um, and yeah, you can that's... go and buy food for yourself like so but I, I would like say probably dividend investing is a little bit more difficult to do in terms of wanting to get high returns. Um, there are those one-off uh, opportunities like Nick said, but it's, yeah. it's definitely think, a bit, little bit more difficult to do. I think it's good. Like we're looking at all these different strategies, but I also think it's good that I like to look at diversification in strategies as opposed to diversification in stocks. So some people just pick one strategy yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, one strategy and then look to diversify their portfolio with that one strategy. I prefer to sort of have a diversification of strategies and then sort of that way when one's sort of underperforming, you know, the other one's going to pick up the slack of that one. Yeah, and I guess that is, um, I mean, if you if you were just investing in an, in an ETF, like you're getting that diversification just built into yeah, the fact sure. that you're buying all these companies. So we'll, yeah. ju- we'll just finish off here with um, quickly talking about the tax. Um, we won't spend too much time on this because we may have people from other, other parts of the world um, that this um, these tax information will be completely useless to them. So no, is there right. any, what would be the reasons for a company, say, put, giving a franc dividend versus a non-franc dividend? Like, what's the thought process on the company side? <laughs> All right. Um, so I, th- I think maybe what it could possibly be is um, finding a marginal tax rate, um, just in terms of reporting uh, standards and stuff. Um, so I know that obviously there's a statutory tax rate that companies get taxed at, and I think it's um, like 30% or something. Um, but in disclosures from the company you'll see an effective tax rate that they actually get taxed at um so if they're holding money offshore or like there's there's a famous uh example of apple um holding money in ireland um to not get taxed in the u.s um and so they so their um effective tax rates is lower than the statutory tax rates in the u.s because the U.S. is um, a, a funny country that taxes taxes you twice on your um, on your earnings if you're a company, um, whereas a lot of other con- co- countries, if you are operating somewhere else and you make revenue somewhere else and you pay the taxes in that other country, you'll just pay sort of the marginal tax rate when you bring it back. And the, U- the U.S. doesn't do that. They want you to pay up anyway. Um, so a lot of companies go to Ireland, which has, um, uh, I think it's an 11% corporate tax rate. So it's very, very, very low. 
And so a lot of companies are going and setting up subsidiaries in Ireland to do that. So that may be part of the reason. Um, and I guess another part of the reason would be um, maybe a- accounting measures or something or um, even just a marketing thing if they're giving off a, a fully frank dividend versus a non-frank dividend. That may be a, a way it's just to drive their stock up a little bit. Yeah. And so in the US, you do have two types of corporations. You can have S-Corps and C-Corps. And if I remember correctly, S-Corps are ones that, they're essentially called pass-through entities. So the comp- the corporation doesn't pay tax um, and the investor just pays the tax, um, whereas C-Corps is the other way around. Um, or C-Corps C are double tax, sorry. So they pay tax, then they pay the dividend, and then the investor also pays tax on their dividend. S-Corps are limited in terms of how many shareholders they can have though. So most of the companies, or at least all of the companies, I think on any stock exchange in the US is going to be a C-Corp. So it's not really something you have to think about too much. Yeah, so anyway, we'll get um, into Catalyst Investing. Um, So this is, I think, a way that all of these strategies can be brought into into one, but um, it is a strategy in itself. And at its core, it's kind of based on the news um, and trading based on new information that comes out about companies. So essentially, the idea with it would be to find a catalyst that is going to drive the stock price. So, like, and these are super, super common. It's like an earnings announcement will drive stock price up or down. Um, same with like news, any news about a company is going to uh, move stocks. Like Elon Musk goes on Joe Rogan's podcast, smokes weed, and the, the stock's going crazy. So, <laughs> catalyst investing is a way of taking advantage of stocks moving based on news about the company. More so like keeping in line with sort of stock picking like we're doing now rather than stock trading. Um, The idea would be to find a company that you, you think is being mispriced by the market and in your investment thesis coming up with um, a reason or an event or something that could come out into the media that would drive the stock price uh, one way or another. And so it's different to value investing um, by you're not just thinking, oh, this is a, a great company and it's trading really low. It might be something that like say um, court proceedings, if a company gets sued and they're in court contesting it, like that could go either way. And so the market or participants in the market are going to have uh, different views on what the outcome of that is going to be. So so some people might think that the company is going to win that court case. Other people think the company is going to lose the court case. And so there's going to be different effects on the company's earnings and therefore stock price if it goes either way. So that gets priced in and you can take a view on that. So it's going to get priced in somewhere in the middle. 
So say the, the stock's trading at $10, $10. They announce that they've got sued. Um, obviously, the stock price is going to jump up and down a bit, a bunch. But then say if they win the court case, they're going to um, say go up to $12. And if they lose the court case, it's going to go down to like 7 And now it's trading at maybe 9 So you can take a, a position, say, well, I think they're going to win the court case based on this research that I've done. And then if they win the court case, it goes up to 12 <coughs> If they lose a court case, it goes down. But obviously you would hope that it goes your way more often than not. Um, yeah. So it's, there, yeah. There, there are a couple of other examples that I can think of now. Like you've got, you want to have, or so, sometimes you want to have like a permanent change that's going to affect the stock price and drive it higher. So one example is like legislation. Yep. So there might be like changes to legislation that benefits a stock in a way that it drives its earnings higher uh, for every year that that impl- like that legislation is implemented. Yep. Another one might be, for example, uh, Trump's tax cuts. So in the early stages when he was just talking about it, that could have been a catalyst to invest in pretty much the general overall market. Yeah. And because that's going to obviously drive earnings higher. Yeah. So it's these things that I guess you have a view on a company that may be affected by something that hasn't been decided yet. And so you taking a view on which way that decision is going to go um, and making that view known by or exercising that view by taking a position in a company um, that expresses that. Um, So like you said, like tax cuts um, or legislation changes or like um, I messaged you in the the day before the Royal Commission report was going to come out and said, oh, I think it's a good time to short the banks now. Um, and yeah. obviously that turned out to be completely wrong. Um, <laughs> but like that's an example of um, like a, a catalyst play is that you're putting um, a position on a stock based on something that's going to come out and you're guessing or you hopefully not guessing, but you've done some research and whatever and you think it's going to be one way. Um, and it hopefully turns out that way for you. What was that? Uh, what was that interesting one that you talked about me on the phone to, after one of the last podcasts? It was some sort of merger or something where someone paid someone in an airport. Oh, that that's a cool one. Um, so essentially there was talk. I can't remember the company. I know Huawei was one of the companies that um, they were going to merge with. There was talk about them merging with another company. I can't remember. Is it Qualcomm? Who- Ah, that was it. I think Huawei and Qualcomm, I think it was. Um, but anyway, so th- this someone was going to um, one of the one of the traders or the trader. It was on another podcast I was listening to. He thought that essentially the, the merger talks are going on forever and ever, and he thought that if the um, I think. Qualcomm or whoever was in the US um, actually flew their executives over to China to talk out the deal that the deal was going to happen. So he wanted to know if they were going to fly to China. So he went on one of these websites like where you can just pay someone to do an odd job. And he, he got in contact with this like like 
soccer mom, basically, who had nothing to do during the day while her kids were at school. And he said, here's the tail number of um, this company's plane. And I want you to go out to the airport and just sit at the airport that I know this plane's at and call me if that plane takes off. Because there's sort of... um, there's loopholes in the law, not loopholes, but there's allowances in the uh, aviation law over there. That means a, a flight plan doesn't have to be public. Um, obviously, for obvious reasons, if you've got sensitive people flying around, you maybe don't want them, uh, the public or the media to know where you're going. And so this company was taking advantage of that. So the only way to know if they, if they were going to China was to see them taking off so he um he paid this this woman to sit there for a couple of weeks and eventually the um the plane did take off and she called him and said oh i think it's happening i think it's happening um and then i I can't remember what the outcome of the of that trade was but um, i think like the plane was taking off at like 355 in the afternoon and obviously the markets close at four so they would making the flight happen at a strategic time and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that, that's an example of quite extreme example, admittedly, of um, catalyst investing. I thought it, yeah, no, that's, it was quite I, cool. I really liked that story. <laughs> yeah. It's like really taking um, investing out of like the theoretical world and like going like actually getting, like watching people do stuff. And like, that, that's like... The sort of stuff you see in movies, I guess. Um, and I'm sure it happens, like, on the big scale. I'm sure big banks and big institutions actually have people going around in the streets and, like, sitting in cafes listening to other people. I'm sure it happens. I think there's probably, like, some sketchy legal areas there, but, <laughs> I mean, if no one ever catches you, it's, it, like... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, like, get into insider trading, but, like, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure things like that happen. <laughs> Wasn't that the plot of Wall Street? Like the plot of Wall Street, the the movie. Like I'm I'm sure. Like Wolf of Wall Street. No, Wall Street, like the 1980s movie with Gordon Gecko. I'm pretty oh. sure. I'm pretty sure that was the plot. Like he had Charlie Sheen's character going and spying on people and bringing him uh, information, <laughs> and eventually he goes to jail for it. I think that was the. Yeah. The plot of that—that's a great movie. Um, if you, if you, I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, definitely go and see that. Definitely watch that. That's a, that's an iconic, iconic movie. Anyway, so we'll just wrap up a little bit. A bit. Um, maybe Matt, you can take it off. Like, I guess I wanted to wrap up the episode by talking about if someone were to come to you and you had some money, and they wanted to use that money to invest, what are you going to want to see from them in terms of? Like, what strategy do you want to see? And also, what sort of information do you want them to have to make you comfortable to give them your money? Yeah. So, if someone come to me, I would want them sort of looking at more of a growth investing style. Yeah. Because that's what I'm more comfortable with. Yeah. And I guess first up, I'd want them to prove to me why like why is that industry going to be popular first of all yep like why is that industry going to take off and then next up we have to jump down to the lower level of 
why is that company in particular going to take off? So first of all, they must show me the industry, why it's important, and then why that company is important in that industry. Okay. Um, so yeah, from that, I guess the amount of information that I would have to be shown is basically how much I can understand really because it needs to be deep enough to provide an accurate projection of those earnings. Yeah. But also, of course, I'd have to be able to understand that information without too much uh, research. Like, I, I don't want to have to go and do a degree yeah. in finance or something just to understand what they're tell, talk, telling me about. Okay, so you want, so yeah, that's, so you that's want it sort of um, nice and simplified for you. Um, yeah, I mean, if if they understand it correctly, they should be able to explain it in a simple way. Yeah. And, but I guess you sort of have to look at it like, are they explaining it simply because they don't know or... Are they explaining it simply because they know a lot and they're able to simplify it for me? Yeah. So I guess that's that's one thing. But the next thing is you want to look at obviously the financials. And uh, for me, I would want to see a consistent track record of earnings growth um, as, as well as like sales and revenues. So I don't really want to see any blips in the radar uh, for that company. And finally, obviously they want to have manageable debt levels. Um, but... Also, I want to see some debt so that they're using that to their advantage in order to grow the company. Yeah. Um, because I do think, you know, debt is very important in a company, especially when they're using it to grow it at a greater rate than obviously the interest that they're paying back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much my simplistic approach to what I would want someone to actually show me is basically I want to see a deep understanding, but also be able to simplify it. It needs to be in an industry that uh, is showing promise and then the comp- company itself has to show promise. And then finally, they have to have a consistent track record uh, in the financials without any blips. Awesome. That's pretty much what I would want to see. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like like you were saying, like obviously a catalyst, as soon as it implement, like is implemented, it's it might show that the company's undervalued now. Like with Trump's tax cuts, as soon as he implemented those, those companies were undervalued for where they were at because they were going to have higher earnings. So, yeah, I guess that's, it can be looked as like a value play, but then also a catalyst play. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of crossover there. Yeah. And I guess, but I, like, I guess on like getting to what I would want to see is like, I don't really mind what uh, style the person thinks they're investing in. Um, if they want to say, oh, this is a really good value play or this is a really good growth play, like that doesn't really matter because... As long as it makes you money. <laughs> as long as it makes me money, as long as they're right. So I want them to be right. Um, and I want, um, I want them to make me 300% in three days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, With a value play. With a dividend play. <laughs> yeah, with a dividend play, I want, I want a, a $4,000 per share dividend. Um, <laughs> now, but like, I I want to sort of see a well structured thesis. So if it's a if it's a, a true uh, value play, like I want it to be structured well, and I actually want to see that it is actually a a good value investment. Um, but I don't want it to be standing on say one leg. So saying that I think this is a really good value investment because of like this 
um, strong earnings growth and the um, like over the last 10 years and that's getting better and whatnot. Because if, if that goes backwards at some point or that falls off, like that investment is now a bust. Yeah. So I kind of want two or three different um, supporting factors for that thesis. So yeah. say it's, yeah, this is a really good value play um, because I think it's undervalued because of these things, but also it's paying this good dividend. So if it turns out to not be a good value play and actually it grows a bit slower than your projections, but it pays a good dividend, well, now, like, that's all right. So I want two or three sort of things in there that that investment can rely on to make money. Um, and then I also want to look at, um, I guess I do lean a little bit towards catalyst investing because I do think that the the market is quite efficient these days. Um, yeah. There are obviously inefficiencies in the market, but I think the market is is pretty pretty good, uh, especially the US markets. They're very, very efficient. Um, so I, I lean towards catalyst investing, but obviously that kind of encompasses everything. But then I want an upside and downside spoken about. So yeah. if someone comes to me and says, I think this is a really good stock to buy because it's a great company, well, that's not good enough. Like, I want to know, like, okay, so what, what price is this company going to? And like, how long is that, yeah. how long roughly is that going to take? Is, are we looking at a three-year horizon or a, like in the next three months it's going to this place? Um, and I also want to know, like, what, if this does go wrong, how, like, where's it going to go? Is the price just is the stock just going to stay flat because well, it everything's priced in already, or is it maybe going to go against us? Say if there's a court case or something and it goes against us, but then where's the stock price going to go to? True. Um, you want to know your downside. Yeah, and I think the the thing that a lot of investors miss is thinking about their downside. Is that they get. They get very tied up in their what they think is going to happen, and so they're talking all about this, um, and they've got all the supporting evidence. And look at my uh, model that I've made. Like, look, this this is going to be at this price, but if it doesn't turn out like that, they don't have a a plan, and they haven't factored that into their portfolio. So. If someone comes to me and says, hey, look, this, I think this is going to happen, but if it doesn't, this is, this is our downside. Well, I'm much more likely to go with someone giving me that pitch than someone giving me a pitch where they're only telling me about an upside because it just shows that you yeah. haven't thought about everything. Yeah. Um, and and so, I think, yeah. I was going to say, like, what we're talking about now in terms of, like, what we'd want to hear from a stock pitch from someone else these are really important considerations to like say if you're going to a financial advisor and actually getting them to uh select stocks for you or build a portfolio get a portfolio manager or something like that like i've had a quite a well, not a quite a few i've had a few people that have come to me and asked you know who would you go to like portfolio managers in the area or whatever uh 
that are basically good at what they're doing. Like this sort of builds into what we're talking about in the opposite direction. Like what yeah. we want to see from them, but like <coughs> in terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, it definitely can be built into not just stock pitches, but what you want to see from the person itself that's actually giving that stock pitch. Like they they're gonna have to have a consistent track record themselves of actually generating those returns and know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like one of my friends said they went to a portfolio manager and he didn't feel comfortable at all that the that the person there actually knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, so I guess having that list of expectations, not only for companies, but the person itself, because you're basically investing in them. Yeah. You know, what do you want to see from them? Yeah. And I guess... I would say if you're going to be picking your own stocks, I I would write a stock pitch. Like actually actually write one up in a formal way that you would present to someone because that's the way you're going to know if you're covering everything. But if you go and read that yeah. stock pitch and say, "Oh, if this was if this was someone that I don't know giving me the stock pitch and asking for my money, would I go with this?" And if you're saying no, then you need to go back and do more research. Um, and so I would say in terms of scenario analysis, just getting back to that point where you're saying what's our upside risk, what's our downside risk, um, that is called scenario analysis first off, and that can be built into Excel models and stuff. Um, so I definitely, if someone's giving me a model to look at, I'm going to want, I'm, first thing I'm going to look for is do you have scenario analysis in here? Um, because like obviously I can understand financial models, um, but um, so if someone's giving me a model, I can I can look at it and understand it. But for just general people, maybe you don't. You want to be able to see that they've thought about their downside as well as the upside of the investment idea. Yeah, I was just thinking about then. Like, imagine if you got a investment thesis from like a crypto uh, enthusiast. Yeah, it's basically you're just gonna get a picture of the moon and a rocket ship, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to the moon, guys. That's all you need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, we'll have to have a, a conversation about crypto on this podcast at some point. Um, yeah, no, that'd be interesting. But anyway, so I just wanted to finish up the podcast, just pointing people towards some resources that maybe if they wanted to learn a bit more about the different investing styles or investing in general where they can go. Um, so Matt, do you have any just off the top of your head? Yeah, so actually it's a really good one. It's called uh, Morningstar Classroom. Yeah. I actually looked at it a couple of years ago and the website's still up and it's, I can't remember how many courses they have, but they run through a, a bunch of basics and then they go into like portfolio building and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it tests you at the end of it as well. Yeah. So it's a free resource, completely free. Um, it's just morningstarclassroom.com, I believe. Awesome. And yeah, I'll double check that and pop it in the um, show notes and in the YouTube description and stuff um, for anyone who's wondering. I would say Reddit is a really good resource. If you can cut through all the sort of noise on Reddit, you can find there are some very smart people floating around there. So I think reddit.com slash r slash investing is a good one and slash r slash security analysis is another good one um so you'll see people posting um stock 
stock ideas that they've got or um, even full stock write-ups that they've done and asking for input on them so you can see what other people are doing and what other That's people awesome. think about that. And then you'll probably find there's some Facebook investing groups around that you'll get the same thing on. Um, and then on YouTube, you can find quite, quite a lot of information. Um, I will say that the value investing space on YouTube is very popular at the moment. Um, so if you want to learn about value investing, definitely go to YouTube and have a look at some of those channels. Um, but just remember, there are other styles out there. Um, and that aren't so represented on YouTube right now, I, I feel. Um, and then Investopedia is a brilliant resource. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Investopedia is yeah. really, really good. If you, so it can kind of be used like as a, a dictionary if there's terms popping up in your research that you don't know. Like if you search like what does this mean or like word and then definition, Usually the first results is going to be Investopedia if it's investing related. They've actually just done a whole um, revamp of their website. So that's really, um, so it's really nice to use now. And they've actually got a whole education section on the website. So they've got like Investing 101. They've got a stock basics tutorial, um, which takes you through like what a stock is and the different types of stock and um uh, how to read stock information and then it'll get into like what we've talked about today sort of different styles of investing um, and what you can look for and all this stuff um, they've yeah, also there's, got there's a, so many resources out there yeah on, on the internet like it's just important like for people that think that they need to go and buy a course to get into stock market investing like you don't don't at all need to buy a course yeah. like you're better off looking at the online resources <coughs> and then having a, a small uh, starter portfolio that you're okay with, you know, losing a couple of thousand dollars in just while you're learning the market. Yeah. And and then just getting all your information online because it is free. Yeah. And I will say on Investopedia, I do have a stock market simulator. Um, it's not like investing in the real market. The stock quotes are delayed and um, yeah. obviously there's not a real order flow happening. Um, so, um, liquidity, I don't know how they're modeling liquidity in their simulator and stuff like this, but, um, it's worth, worth looking at if you've never invested before, but just remember in, uh, simulators are completely different to the real world. Um, yeah. both I mean, I, I personally, I did the ASX challenge one. Yep. So I actually did that, I think for two years in a row. Yep before I actually put any money into the market myself. Yeah. So I made sure that I could generate a return, like a positive return on that. Yeah. And before I actually put my first buck into the market. Yeah. But I mean, I bet when you put, when you put your first uh, money into the market, you didn't sleep much that night. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was much different. Yeah, it's a, the, the emotions get real when it's actually real money in there. Um, and then yeah. I guess the last, 100%. the last resource I've got is... Um, it is a paid resource, um, but if you're wanting to get serious about learning how the professionals do this um, and how they're specifically modeling their investment ideas in um, in uh, Excel, then Wall Street Prep is the place you want to go for that. 
Um, and so they, they do have courses on there. I've gone through um, probably five or six of their courses at this point. Um, and it, it's really a step up from like, so you can really learn how to use Excel like a financial analyst would. Um, and Wall Street Prep, they like several investment banks actually use them to train their new hires. So, oh wow, it's like it's legit stuff. Um, and there's, do you know the rate that that's that that goes for? Um, so if you want to do an in-person, uh, in-person course, it's like a thousand bucks or something like that. Yep. Um, they call them boot camps, I think, and that's like literally you go there for a weekend. Um, and they teach you everything you're going to need. They do them all around the world. I don't think they're coming to Australia soon, though. Um, but, yeah, those are like like $1,000 or $2,000. Um, but then their online courses, it's the same course. It's just not you don't have a teacher there to talk to, but they do have support and stuff. Um, I think the basic course is... The basic course is 150 bucks, so that'll show you um, financial statement modeling um, yep. and sort of learning how to model a financial statement and project that financial statement into the future. Um, and then they've got all sorts of different ones like um, real estate modeling and restructuring modeling and M&A modeling and all the stuff um, that you can get. Um, so I've done like a bunch of their courses. And it is it is a, a big step up, and does um, uh, it'll it it'll increase your skills a lot, but not strictly necessary for um, if you're first getting into it. Um, it's yeah, more, and I guess yeah. that course would it does provide like an outline, so like you're paying for, I guess your time in a way, because if you are learning stuff online, it's going to take you a much longer in order to make sense of it all and put it together in a nice little neat package. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of what you get with a course. You're sort of saving time in researching dead ends um, and you're just learning the stuff you need to know in the in the order that you need to learn it. Yeah. And I guess if you're looking for courses, like there is the website called Udemy, um, which they have a bunch of courses out there on all sorts of things. They have a bunch on investing and stuff um and they run like 20 bucks or something um I, I probably wouldn't say that um that's the best place to get your information i don't know how well they vet um the courses um but i mean if you if you go in with the mindset of take this with a grain of salt like that's fine um but yeah just go learn from the free stuff before you start paying for stuff and of course, if you have any questions about any anything we've spoken about, you can uh, contact any of us or pop in the comments. Um, and like I'm sure we'll we'll be happy to help. And if you want um, us to point you towards resources, I've got a bunch of books here about modeling and stuff, so I can point you towards those books and whatnot if you want to get deeper into it. So anyway, I think that's all we've got for today. Um, do you guys want to plug your socials before we go? Get some followers. Yeah, for sure. So, you can find me, this is Matt speaking, by the way. You can find me on uh, the Millennial Investor YouTube channel and all the links to my other socials are just in the description. Cool. Awesome. And um, I'm found at 
jason.hughes underscore on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. And also at uh, the Australian Market Briefing Podcast, which is available on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and everywhere that you normally listen to podcasts. Um, and obviously, we do have a, an Instagram for this uh, podcast. Um, it is, I just want to double check because the business as usual podcast Instagram was taken already by someone. Yeah, that's an, it's business as usual underscore podcast. Um, so you can go follow us on there. I'm going to try put some stuff on there through the week between episodes to provide some more value. So uh, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll be back next week with another episode uh, to teach you some more stuff. See ya. Bye.